And this is WMNF Tampa. This is a replay from a broadcast from last year on True Talk. Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Samar. I'm in the studio for the first time in weeks because, um, as I mentioned last week on the show, um, which I did remotely, that uh, I had COVID. And after being sick for 12 days at home, I ended up uh, having to go to the hospital with uh, respiratory problems and um, went there and spent five days in the hospital. Thank God for the folks at the hospital and, of course, all the first responders that are out there that are helping people. Um, they took care of me, gave me all these different medicines in the hospital, and um, I was released, recovered at home. Still recovering from it somewhat, but mostly back to normal. Uh, our prayers are with all those that are um, getting infected. Uh, it, it's not over yet, so keep, continue to wear your mask and do your social distancing. Um, get vaccinated and... Um, especially if you're up there in age, but you know, I'm not up there yet. At least I'm not, I don't think so. But um, and it's still a mystery why some people uh, get more sick than others, why people develop pneumonia and others not. So be careful out there. On today's show, we're going to be speaking about um, Israel and Palestine and the Israeli occupation. There's a new report that just released this week by Human Rights Watch, the international organization and the title of the report, A Threshold Crossed, Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution. So we're going to be speaking to Ali Abunima. He's a journalist out of Chicago with Electronic Intifada about this report. What does it mean? Um, and is there anything new in the report that we did not already know? And um, also your phone calls. Uh, later in the program. So this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We'll be right back. I thought we were going to be back. Um, anyway, my music is not playing. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Thank you. 
Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Samar. This is uh, WMNF and it's live in Tampa, Florida. Um, my co-host is joining me live. She's doing some really important and uh, faraway social distancing all the way from southwest Florida. Welcome to the program, Samar. Good morning, Ahmed. It's so wonderful to have you back. I'm so grateful, alhamdulillah, that you are doing better and you can be in the studio. We missed you. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to be back. It's uh, surreal after having COVID and not being able to breathe. And um, now I'm breathing again and back in the studio. Thank God, as we say in Arabic, Alhamdulillah. It's the month of Ramadan. We're still in it. I'm fasting. You're fasting. Um, we have to wait until sunset to eat and drink and uh, do everything else. So it's a special month. It's a holy month. Hmm? I thought you shouldn't be fasting. Why are you fasting? Well, I mean, I have I have permission to be excused from fasting if I'm really sick. However, I start feeling better. And if I can uh, do other things, I felt good enough. And I've been doing it for several days. So it actually feels good. So I'm, I'm glad that I'm doing it and uh, being part of it because it's a special time of the year. And I didn't want to miss uh, Ramadan. So Ramadan Mubarak to you and to all our listeners that are observing the fast and um, if you know Muslims that are fasting you can give them the greeting of Ramadan Mubarak or blessed Ramadan or may God accept your fasting um, on today's program summer we're going to be speaking about this um, um, really important report that came out that's uh, by Human Rights Watch a internationally known one of the most respected human rights organizations in the world the title of the report which was released on April 27th is uh, called a threshold crossed and we're going to have on the program today um, a journalist, uh, Ali Abunima. He is an author and a journalist and uh, the founder of the Electronic Intifada and the editor there. Uh, he'll be joining us from Chicago to discuss this report. So uh, in the report, which was released on April 27th, and um, uh, in, in a summary, and I'll just read a couple of paragraphs. Um, about 6, 8, and this is from the report, about 6, 6.8 million Jewish Israelis and 6.8 Palestinians live today between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, an area encompassing Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory. The latter, meaning the Palestinian territory, is made up of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. Throughout most of this area, Israel is the sole governing power. 
In the remainder, it exercises primary authority alongside limited Palestinian self-rule. Across these areas and in most aspects of life, Israeli authorities methodically privilege Jewish Israelis and discriminate against Palestinians. Laws, policies, and statements by leading Israeli officials make make it plain that the objective uh, of maintaining Jewish-Israeli control over demographics, political power, and land has long guided government policy. In pursuit of this goal, authorities have dispossessed, confined, forcibly separated, and subjugated Palestinians by virtue of their identity to varying degrees of intensity in certain areas, as described in this report, these deprivations are so severe that they amount to the crime to crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. Um, this is the opening paragraph of the report, um, and it goes on to say that. And one more paragraph, and then we'll go to our guest. Several widely held assumptions, including that the occupation is temporary, that the quote-unquote peace process will soon bring an end to the Israeli abuses, that Palestinians have meaningful control over their lives in the West Bank and Gaza, and that Israel is an egalitarian democracy inside its borders, have obscured the reality of Israel's entrenched discriminatory rule over Palestinians. Israel has maintained military rule over some portion of the Palestinian population for all for all but six months of its 73-year history. Since it, um, it goes on to say it did so over the vast majority of Palestinians inside Israel from 1948 until 1966. From, 19, from 1967 until the present, it has military ruled over the Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory excluding East Jerusalem. By contrast, it has since, it has since its founding uh, governed all Jewish Israelis, including settlers, settlers in the occupied Palestinian territory since the beginning of the occupation in 1967 under its more rights respecting civil law. So you have two different laws, parallel laws, ones for the Jewish Israelis and one for the occupied Palestinians. And um, Samar, we want to bring on now our guest, Ali Abunima from the Electronic Intifada to join us. Welcome to the program, Ali. And Hi, uh, Ahmed. Uh, Ramadan Mubarak to you. Hi, Samar. And uh, Ramadan Mubarak to all your listeners who are uh, uh, marking the month of Ramadan. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Ali, you heard me read the opening paragraph from this Human Rights Watch report, which I'm sure you've read and uh, you're writing about at the Electronic Intifada. What's your reaction? Well, of course I welcome it. And I think you you gave a really good summary of sort of the, the basic outline of why Israel operates apartheid against Palestinians. Um, the basic raison d'etre of Israel is to... Um, create and maintain a Jewish majority in historic Palestine, what is today Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, through uh, almost any means necessary. Of course, that Jewish majority was created in the first place through ethnic cleansing uh, back in 1947 through 1950, what we call the Nakba. Um, 
And since then, Israel has maintained uh, racist and discriminatory laws, dozens of racist and discriminatory laws against Palestinian citizens of Israel. Those are the Palestinians who were left behind in what became Israel and uh, were given citizenship, albeit second-class citizenship. And then it has maintained uh, uh, much more brutal uh, forms of control against Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, which it occupied in 1967. And of course, against Palestinian refugees who are not allowed to return to their homeland by Israel uh, just because they're not Jewish. So those are... Uh, So what the Human Rights Watch report does is give a lot of granular detail. It's a a long report. It's more than 200 pages that provides really irrefutable evidence. And it also affirms what Palestinians have been saying for many decades. So I think really a useful way to see the Human Rights Watch report is that this is a mainstream institution and, and Human Rights Watch is very mainstream coming to terms with the realities that Palestinians themselves have been experiencing and living and describing for decades. And it is part of a sort of a wider movement because just a few years ago, excuse me, just a few months ago in January, B'Tselem, which is a well-known Israeli human rights group, issued its own report reaching pretty much the same conclusion. And before that, in 2017, um, ESQA, which is uh, part of the United Nations, um, the Economic and Social Council for for Southwest Asia, commissioned a legal report uh, done by the leading uh, international scholar, uh, legal scholar Richard Falk, and uh, another academic, uh, Virginia Tilly, which laid out how Israel is an apartheid regime. And the reaction to that report was that there was massive bullying and threats by the United States against the UN. And the UN Secretary General, in a very cowardly way, uh, withdrew that report. But what what we can see is that even though there was this effort to suppress the ESQA report in 2017, more and more people, more and more institutions like B'Tselem, like Human Rights Watch, are starting to recognize openly that Israel is an apartheid regime. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. We're speaking to Ali Abu Nima about the Human Rights Watch report that was just released this week on April 27th. It's called A Threshold Crossed Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution. Uh, Summer, go ahead. I just wanted to remind our listeners that Ali Abunama is also an author of two fascinating books. We've spoken about them before, but it would be great if people can check them out. Uh, one is called One Country, A Bold Proposal to End the Israeli-Palestinian Impasse. The other book is called The Battle for Justice in Palestine. Wonderful research and um, look at uh, the the solution, maybe, for the uh, uh, impasse uh, in the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. And Ali, I would like to start maybe by giving the audience the significance of the fact that this is an American organization. Uh, some people might not know the background of Human Rights Watch. Uh, do you feel like me that it has really significance? Because this is not some European or foreign organization. This is uh, an American 
organization. Yeah, and I think I think that that is significant in that it shows that even here in the United States, where uh, you know staunchly pro-Israel positions have been the consensus for the last fifty years, that consensus is starting to break, and also. The fear of the Israel lobby, which, you know, is vicious when it goes after any individual or institution for criticizing Israel, um, that that fear is also the fear factor is diminishing. And I think it's because it's just undeniable. You can't claim to be a serious human rights organization and just ignore the 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 harsh and brutal reality of Israeli apartheid. And the Human Rights Watch report makes an important point, one that, of course, I've been making and many others have been making for many, many years, is that the so-called peace process has provided kind of an alibi and a cover for, um, you know, uh, the so-called international community to deny reality. And it's cover that they still try to use, by the way, if you approach even many Democratic Party politicians and say, uh, you know, what what uh, what do you think of what's going in Palestine? They say, oh, well, you know, there's some terrible things going on, but we need to get back to the peace process. We need to get back to negotiations as if, uh, you know, Palestinians and Israelis are two equals and that they're just, uh, you know, in a dispute together and they just need to sit down and talk. And And what this report lays bare is, the reality that we're dealing with an apartheid regime where there is no equality between Israelis and Palestinians, where one group rules the country in its own interests and with the goal of maintaining its own supremacy. And that requires an entirely different approach. It requires accountability. It requires pressure. Let's remember how uh, apartheid was dealt with in South Africa. It was dealt with through international sanctions, international boycott and divestment campaigns, which, in of, of course, in addition to the internal protest and resistance in South Africa, eventually brought an end to that apartheid regime. That's a fundamentally different paradigm. Indeed, the kind of approach that is being pushed by uh, many political leaders uh, with respect to Israel, is what Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were, were pushing with with apartheid South Africa, which was no sanctions and so-called constructive engagement. And the world really rejected that. They said, no, we, there's no such thing as constructive engagement with an apartheid regime. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be pressure. There needs to be sanctions to bring this regime to, to the end. And of course, there were negotiations to end apartheid in South Africa, but that came only after the regime felt that uh, it could no longer go on because the international pressure was so strong that they had to negotiate an end to apartheid. Ali, I would like you to talk a little bit about uh, the fact that this report is talking about the Palestinians who live in the state of Israel, because, you know, yourself is a public speaker and you give lectures, and whenever you uh, go to the part of asking uh, questions, Q&A, people tell you it's the only democracy in the world that has a population of Palestinians who have Israeli citizens. Yet this report talks about the situation from the river to the sea. Can you mention uh, to our uh, listeners uh, the uniqueness of this report that tells us 
that even Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship uh, do not uh, have uh, the same uh, equality as a Jew. That's right. And um, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, you can, you can basically divide Palestinians into, uh, let's say, uh, four groups. Uh, or let's make it simple, let's say three groups. One is Palestinian citizens of Israel. And these are Palestinians and their descendants who remained behind in what became Israel in 1948. And they were given Israeli citizenship, including the right to vote. And I'll come back to them. The second group is Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza Strip under Israeli military occupation and siege. And they have been under Israeli occupation and siege in the West Bank and Gaza Strip since 1967. And they have even fewer rights, or let's say no rights at all. Um, and they don't have Israeli citizenship. In fact, they're stateless. And then the third major group is Palestinian refugees. That's Palestinians uh, outside their historic homeland who are not allowed to return by Israel because they're not Jewish. So uh, the report uh, shows how Israel practices discrimination apartheid against all three groups with the specific goal of maintaining Jewish-Israeli supremacy within Israel. Now, let's come back to the Palestinian citizens of Israel. These are the Palestinians. There are about 1.5 million, or about 20% of Israel's citizens, who have the right to vote. And as you mentioned, Samar, people will often say, well, look, Palestinians have a right to vote in Israel. Well, that's true. But what, what those people don't point out is that even though one and a half million Palestinians have a right to vote, um, they still have second-class citizenship. And I'll give some examples. There is, according to Adala, which is a Palestinian uh, group, a legal advocacy group for Palestinian citizens in Israel, they have an online database, which anyone can look up, look up of more than 65 laws in Israel that discriminate against Palestinian citizens uh, because they're not Jewish. And uh, this, so this discrimination against them is legal uh, and it involves literally every aspect of life from uh, land use. Israel doesn't allow Palestinian communities in Israel really to have access to any land, including their own land, so they can't expand there's terrible overcrowding, there's terrible socioeconomic uh, inequality that manifests itself in shorter life expectancy, more sickness, more poverty, really very similar to the kind of racial disparities you see in the United States as the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. You can see uh, in the differences between Palestinian citizens of Israel and Israeli Jews. And But what the, the bigger context here, and this is something Ahmed pointed out, is that under Israeli control, uh, within the territory of, of uh, historic Palestine, Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza Strip, there are 6.8 million Israeli Jews and 6.8 million Palestinians. And really, it is only the Israeli Jews who have full rights and privileges. So the fact that one and a half million of those Palestinians can vote in Israel doesn't really change the overall picture. If you're and that's really, 
That's that's really the, 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 the point. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. We're speaking to uh, author and journalist Ali Abunima. He is with the Electronic Intifada. You can find him online. We're speaking about the Human Rights Watch report that was just released. It's called The Threshold Crossed, Israeli Authorities and uh, the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution. And going back to the report, um, it says, quote, for the past 54 years, Israeli authorities have facilitated the transfer of Jewish Israelis to the occupied Palestinian territory, meaning land that belongs to the Palestinians where it's supposed to be for Palestine, and granted them a superior status under the law as compared to the Palestinians living in the same territory when it comes to civil rights, access to land, and freedom to move, build, and confer residency rights to close relatives. While Palestinians have a limited degree of self-rule in parts of the occupied Palestinian territories, Israel retains primary control over borders, airspace, and the movement of people and goods, security, and the registry of the entire population, which in turn dictates such matters as legal status and eligibility to receive identity cards. Uh, Ali, this sounds uh, far worse than the apartheid that was happening in South Israel, I mean South Africa. Uh, it's bordering what was happening in Nazi Germany. Well, you know... I mean, not, uh, of course, to the extent of extermination camps, but what was happening before they got to that level, especially with uh, especially identity cards and license plates. Right. Well, you know, uh, in, indeed, many of the South African freedom fighters including Archbishop Desmond Tutu, have said repeatedly, and going back many years, many years, you know, back to the early 2000s or even the 1990s, that uh, what they witness in Palestine and what they witness Israel doing to Palestinians is worse than what they lived under under um, South African apartheid. And that's not to to diminish the horror of South African apartheid in any way, shape, or form. It was a horrific white supremacist system. But uh, you could call Israel uh, a 21st century apartheid and also the level to which Israel applies uh, high technology to control every aspect of Palestinian life, to monitor the movement of Palestinians, to restrict their movement. Uh, while Israeli settlers living on Palestinian land uh, have freedom of movement, the freedom to build their homes. Indeed, their homes are built for them by the government. Um, they're provided health care. I mean, a very relevant uh, current example is what uh, people have been calling vaccine apartheid. So in the West Bank, uh, for example, you have Israeli settlers living right up against Palestinian villages. The Israeli settlers all get vaccines from the Israeli government. We've heard many news reports about supposedly how Israel has uh, vaccinated so many people more than any country in the world. Well, in the West Bank, if you're an Israeli Jewish settler, you get a vaccine, no problem. They've all been vaccinated. If you're a Palestinian living under Israeli rule in the West Bank, you don't get a vaccine. So that that's a really stark life and death example of how Israeli apartheid functions. So when they're talking about how they vaccinated, you know, uh, 70 or 80 percent of their population, that in itself is proof that they're only considering the Jewish Israeli population and not the Palestinian, because if it was really the entire 
population and all the people under their rule, um, well, half of them are Palestinian and they're not getting the vaccine. Well, the Palestinian citizens of Israel are getting the vaccine. The 1.5 million. The 1.5 million. But you've got uh, another 3 million or so uh, in the West Bank and another 2 million in uh, in Gaza who are not getting the vaccine. And let's be clear about this because Israel uses the fact that there is this limited Palestinian self-rule that, that you mentioned and that's mentioned in the report as an alibi. They say, oh, well, we're not responsible for the Palestinians because they have their own government. They're doing their own thing. Uh, you know, so it's not our problem. But that's not the reality. The reality is that the Palestinian Authority can do nothing without Israeli permission or control. And the reality is that under international law, these are occupied territories. And Israel, under the Fourth Geneva Convention, is responsible for the public health and welfare of the people living under its military occupation. So the the fact that Uh, Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are not Israeli citizens. In fact, as I mentioned, they're stateless. They have no citizenship of any recognized state. Uh, Does not absolve Israel of its legal responsibility to vaccinate them. And yet Israel has absolutely refused to do that. In fact, it was even going to start exporting vaccines to you know, places like Guatemala as a political reward for those countries, which are, you know, also kind of puppets of the U.S., uh, for them recognizing uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital, Israel was going to reward them by sending them vaccines. So it was going to send vaccines halfway around the world while refusing to vaccinate the millions of Palestinians living under its military occupation. If uh, you're joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We're speaking with Ali Abonima from the Electronic Intifada about this uh, report from Human Rights Watch. If you want to call in, you can call us at 813-239-9663. 813-239-9663. Or you can send us an email with your question or comment to uh, dj at wmnf.org. If you're listening to the show after the program, uh, listen to the podcast through iTunes or any of the other platforms, you can email us at truetalk at WMNF. But right now, you email us at dj at WMNF. Um, can you give us some examples because um, of, of this dual system of discriminatory, of apartheid, of persecution, especially when it comes to the occupied Palestinian territories that you mentioned uh, and the Gaza Strip, where uh, they say, for example, that they... You know, there is a Palestinian government there. What are some of the examples when it comes to access to water or even building, um, uh, you know, on your own land or these uh, roads we hear about as far as, you know, Jewish only roads? Um, because some of our listeners may probably, you know, they don't hear these stories and may not be familiar with the level and degree of persecution that Palestinians are facing on their own land. There, there are so many, and it is such a, 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 an intricate uh, and detailed system of control and apartheid that it's, it's sort of hard to convey in a soundbite. So, you know, just a couple of examples. Now, the West Bank, which is the area which, you know, part of the area which Israel occupied in 1967 and was supposed to be sort of the along with the, the Gaza Strip, the, the territory where there would be a Palestinian state, uh, you know, under the, the concept of a two-state solution. So Israel has 
since 1967 militarily occupied that area and been doing everything it can to make a two-state solution impossible by moving Israeli Jewish settlers onto that land, forcibly taking the land from Palestinians and engaging in a sort of a, a slow process of ethnic cleansing that is not spectacular, uh, you know, for the most part. In other words, you know, they're not they're not driving out tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people at a time, which would be very difficult to do, uh, you know, under the glare of international media and so on. So it's a very slow incremental process. And how do you do it? You do it by starving Palestinians of the ability to sustain their lives and livelihood on their land. So take the Jordan Valley. This is a vast area of the West Bank that runs along the Jordan River. Israel has basically, over the last couple of decades, driven out tens of thousands of Palestinians from this area by making it impossible for them to farm. How did they do that? Well, if you're a Palestinian farmer and you own land there, Israel simply bans you from digging a well on your own land. You're not allowed to dig a well on your own land. Okay, so Israel has banned you from digging a well. Well, what about if you decide to collect rainwater? Well, you're not allowed to collect rainwater. Israel says the rainwater belongs to us too. And Routini goes out and destroys rainwater collection cisterns that Palestinians have put up. So how can you farm? So then Israel... Uh, mines the water from the West Bank aquifers. It takes it out, the Israeli National Water Company. And if you're a Palestinian, you have to buy back your own water from the Israelis. So that's one uh, method of control. And of course, water is essential for life. And you can see the result in that the per capita usage of water by Palestinians in the West Bank is a fraction of what it is for Israeli settlers living illegally uh, on Palestinian land. Another thing is that uh, Israel demolishes each year hundreds of, of Palestinian homes in different areas of the West Bank and says, well, they were built without permits. You know, sounds very reasonable, right? If you want to build a home in Tampa or in, uh, uh, you know, uh, in Chicago, you have to have a building permit, Correct. right? Yes. Yeah. Except the the except that imagine if the authorities in Tampa or in Chicago only gave building permits to white citizens. There was a time in America when that that's how things were, right? We had restrictive covenants that said you you couldn't buy a house or sell a house in a certain area if you weren't white. Uh, you know you couldn't you couldn't buy a house in that area if you were black or if you were Jewish. Well, those laws have been invalidated in the United States for some time, although let's not kid ourselves that there isn't still discrimination. But, that, but legally speaking, that's still the situation in, in uh, Israel and in the occupied territories. Palestinians can't get building permits to build on their own land, so they have to build illegally. This is their uh, own homes, their own land. And they yeah, allow, but homes, however, they, and they allow the, the Jewish settlers, the Israeli right. Jewish settlers that are there illegal, illegally, they allow them yeah. to build, uh, you know, right across the street. Right. So, so the Palestinians have to build, quote unquote, illegally, uh, let me say, because Israel is not the legitimate authority in this area. It's an occupying power. So then the Israelis come and they demolish the homes. They demolish schools as well. There, there are dozens of schools that are under threat of demolition. And many schools have been destroyed, including schools 
paid for by you know international donors like the European Union, which which does nothing when Israel does that. So that's that's the reality of of apartheid. And of course, the settlers will often build uh, in new areas on Palestinian land without permission from the Israeli uh, government. And then what happens in the vast majority of cases is that the Israeli authorities retroactively give permits to the Jewish settlers. So how can you live? How can you you, you, you sustain normal life in those conditions? It's not that uh, uh, headline grabbing, uh, the issue of uh, building permits. It sounds very technical. It sounds very, uh, a little bit boring. It's not something that you can... Um, uh, you know, ne- necessarily put in a YouTube video and, and make it go viral, but it's the reality of apartheid that has uh, that that has a by which Israel has year after year, decade after decade, stolen more and more Palestinian land. Finally, can you just uh, touch on this? Uh, on this Sorry, du- Ahmed, are you going to ask another question? Just Sorry. one more. I just want a follow-up yeah. question. If you could just touch up on this. A dual road systems that they have there where there's these great highways for only Jewish people to travel on, not inside Israel, but on Palestinian land. And uh, meanwhile, Palestinians have all these checkpoints. Can you, can you describe that to our listeners? That's right. So, you know, the, the, set, the settlements, which are these large um, sort of housing projects that, that kind of look uh, like some of the big uh, housing projects you see in the far suburbs of Chicago, just clusters of identical homes surrounded by a fence, but they would be even, you know, much more militarized in the West Bank. And they're, they're often up on hills, on mountainsides, so they they overlook, they dominate the landscape, and they're linked by uh, highways, which in many places are restricted solely for the use of Jewish settlers. And palace, so the, you know, a famous example is that um, to get from uh, Bethlehem, which is uh, you know the traditional birthplace of Jesus Christ, it's a city in the West Bank, uh, south of Jerusalem, to get from Bethlehem to Ramallah which is a city in uh, north of Jerusalem, if you're just driving uh, straight through, it's about 20 minutes. But if you're a Palestinian from the West Bank, you're not allowed to use those roads. You have to take this very circuitous route uh, through the mountains, which takes you several hours because uh, the, the, uh, the, the direct road from Bethlehem to uh, Ramallah through Jerusalem is banned for Palestinians. So that, those are some of the examples. That you, and, and as you mentioned earlier, they didn't have, um, you know, whites-only roads in apartheid South Africa. So this, this is an example of where Israeli apartheid goes beyond even what there was in South Africa. Summer, go ahead. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. My co-host Ahmed Bidir and myself, Samar Jarrah, are talking with Ali Abunama, who is a journalist, but also a co-founder of an amazing publication, online publication called The Electronic Intifada. I urge you to go and check it out because it does amazing work. Ali is also the author of two books, One Country 
and the other one is the battle for justice in Palestine. Now, Ali, I want to actually read the, from the uh, Human Rights Watch report. It says the Israeli government is, uh, as you mentioned, the main authority across Israel and the occupied territories. And the intent of the policies uh, that the report demonstrated is to maintain domination over uh, Palestinians by ensuring control over land and demographics by uh, Jewish majority. And it gives, for instance, an example of the Jerusalem uh, municipality. Jerusalem is kind of divided between West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem. And the authorities' goal is to maintain a sizable Jewish uh, majority in this uh, uh, city by boxing in Palestinian uh, areas while helping predominantly Jewish areas to uh, flourish. And today we are witnessing an event uh, in an area in East Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah, where the Palestinians will be evicted. Could you like, you, uh, tell us about now, today and tomorrow and yesterday, an event is happening that absolutely describes in reality, on the ground, what Human Rights Watch report uh, talked about through this Sheikh Jarrah issue. Yeah, Sheikh Jarrah is among several neighborhoods in occupied East Jerusalem uh, where the Palestinian population is being um, uh, uh, systematically erased and expelled by Israel as part of its decades-long plan to turn Jerusalem into an exclusively Jewish city. Now, if you look at the tourism propaganda that Israel puts out, they say, oh, Jerusalem, it's a city of three faiths, and everyone in Jerusalem is free to live where they want and how they want and to worship. This is total nonsense. The reality on the ground is that Israel has been house by house, street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood, taking over areas of East Jerusalem. And Sheikh Jarrah is currently the target where dozens of families face imminent expulsion. But another one is Silwan, which is another uh, old neighborhood of, uh, of East Jerusalem, where um, Israel, where Israeli settle, settlement organizations with the support of the Israeli government and even the United States under Trump were systematically, have been systematically expelling Palestinians to build this so-called um, uh, City of David tourist attraction, which is, again, a part of erasing Jerusalem's Christian Muslim, Arab, Palestinian character and turning it into a sort of Jewish-only Disneyland. Of course, uh, uh, Jerusalem is uh, uh, important to, uh, to, to Jewish people, but Jews were never the exclusive um, residents of Jerusalem or the exclusive owners of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a much longer uh, Christian, Muslim, uh, Armenian, uh, Palestinian, African, uh, Circassian uh, history. You find so so, so much um, uh, uh, diversity in Jerusalem that Israel is really trying to, uh, uh, and, and Israel is instead trying to turn it into this Jewish-only Disneyland. But what looks 
But what that looks like on the ground and is not seen to the tourists who go there, particularly, by the way, the religious tourists that, that go on tours from the United States, uh, you know, a lot of church groups go uh, on, on tours to see, you know, the birthplace of Jesus. What they don't see is uh, the, the brutal uh, violence with which this, this fantasy Jerusalem is being created, the bulldozing of homes, the... Uh, expulsion of family, large extended families with children who are put out on the street from the homes they've lived in for decades. And that's what's happening now in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan and other parts of Jerusalem as well. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's why you it's it, it's why you can't talk about, oh, let's just negotiate and sit down as if Palestinians and Israelis are equal. How do you negotiate with someone who's bulldozing your home? If you're just joining us, this is Truth Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. We only have um, about 10 minutes left. If you have a comment or question, you can call us now at 813-239-9663. 813-239-9663 or uh, dj at wmnf.org. Um, after the show, you can email truthtalk at wmnf.org. All the information you're giving... Um, Ali is damning evidence and, uh, you know, international human rights organizations have been writing about uh, this for some time. Do you think this report is going to make a difference with members of Congress? And why do members of Congress continue to look the other way with these uh, persecutions and transgressions and crimes against humanities continue to happen? I mean, are they... Are they just clueless about it? Do they know it's happening? Do they know the extent of it? Many of them go on these junkets and trips to Israel uh, as members of Congress with groups like APAC or the Jewish Federations. Are they just blind of, to what's happening there or what's, hap what's going on? No, no, nobody is blind to this. Um, they all know, the governments know, but it's politically costly to change a policy that uh, you've been um, that has been politically convenient for decades. You know, it's it's politically costly in the United States for a politician to come out and say, "Yeah, Israel is an apartheid state," and what are we doing, giving billions of dollars a year to an apartheid state? Now there is some change happening, and that's thanks to grassroots pressure, which absolutely has to continue. Uh, the, the European Union, it's the same. They're one of the biggest supporters and funders of Israel, and they just pretend not to see what's happening. I mean, the irony is, I mentioned B'Tselem, the Israeli human rights organization, that uh, in January issued its own report describing in great detail Israel's system of apartheid. Now, B'Tselem is funded by the European Union, and, and the EU refused even to acknowledge that report. So, there's cowardice, political cowardice, political convenience. Uh, there's no denying what's happening. As you said, this has all been documented for decade upon decade upon decade. So that's why Palestinians, you know, Palestinians recognized this political reality for, you know, uh, many decades ago. And that's why they've been calling for boycott, divestment and sanctions. They're saying, well, governments aren't acting. So we need a grassroots campaign. And boycott is a very familiar tactic in the United States. We've seen it reused repeatedly in uh, the United States. Just recently, for example, when Georgia passed this uh, racist voter law, which is clearly designed to suppress the vote of black citizens, uh, 
major companies announced, well, we're not going to do business in Georgia or we're going to pull out of Georgia. That's exactly what Palestinians are calling for with respect to Israeli apartheid. But when Palestinians uh, call for that, you have all these people claiming that Israel is the victim and that uh, somehow it's discriminatory or anti-Semitic to take a stand in favor of Palestinian rights. And we even have in, in 25 states now laws, which including Florida uh, uh, and Illinois, where I, where I am, laws which aim to, to try to restrict or, um, you know, somehow uh, punish uh, people or organizations or companies who boycott Israel or boycott companies that are complicit in Israel's crimes. Uh, now, I should be clear here so people aren't confused. Even though these laws exist, you still have a constitutional right to engage in a boycott. Those laws are really designed more to smear the movement and send a message. They cannot, um, they cannot actually uh, cancel your First Amendment right to advocate or participate in a boycott uh, of Israel or complicit companies. But the point I want to make here is that, uh, that, that, you know, having a report, even a report like the Human Rights Watch report, in itself does nothing unless there is a movement, a grassroots movement that is advocating for... Um, uh, you know, and pushing for actual change in policy and a change in approach. Um, we're going to go to a phone call. Paul from Valrico, you're on True Talk. Go Hi. ahead, Paul. Yeah. Okay, hello. Hi, you're on the air. Go ahead. I wondered if one of your guests could speak to the issue of a one-state solution. Thank you. Paul is asking about that. Go ahead, uh, Ali, what's your position on that? Well, my position is for many years I've advocated a one-state solution. I think that ultimately that's the only way to get um, a measure of justice, equality, and a decent life for everyone. Uh, I don't believe, uh, you know, I think the two-state solution is apartheid, and it was designed to be apartheid. And, and indeed, my first book, which Summer was kind enough to mention, uh, One Country, uh, goes into detail about a one-state solution, and, and, and as does my second book, The Battle for Justice in Palestine. So those are, uh, you know, given the short time, I, I would refer the listener to them. But yes, I think the bigger picture here is that calling the reality of apartheid by its name is a recognition that there is already a one-state solution, but it's one apartheid state. And the future has to be one where it's a state of all its citizens with full rights, equality, restitution for everyone, regardless of race, religion, background. That's the only future that can be humane and decent for everyone, whether they're Palestinian, Jewish, or any, anything else. Why is there so much resistance to that? There's always resistance to justice. You know that's sadly the 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 lesson of history. What you know? Why is there? Why was there resistance to ending slavery? Why was there resisting to, resistance to ending Jim Crow? 
Why was there resistance to ending apartheid in South Africa? What it comes down to is that it's going to require some people to give up their power and privilege. And also, there's a lot of fear-mongering. As we saw in, in South Africa, you know, for decades, the white population was propagandized. You know, I'm talking about sort of the, the, the quote-unquote ordinary white people in South Africa, they were propagandized that if we give up apartheid, if we give up power, we're all going to be slaughtered in our beds. We're all going to be thrown into the sea. And um, Israeli Jews are propagandized in exactly the same way. They're taught to fear Palestinians. They're taught to view Palestinians as inherently barbaric, inherently violent. They're taught to view any violence by Palestinians as being in the character of Palestinians instead of a product of the unjust, the systematically unjust situation that uh, Palestinians live under under Israeli rule. And they're taught not to see Israel's violence against Palestinians as the primary and precipitating reason for violence and conflict. So the the fear-mongering, so you have two aspects. One is People don't like to give up power and privilege. And the other is fear of transformational change. And I think both things play into the resistance to uh, a a one-state solution. Um, We're almost out of time. I want to read an email from Patrice Gallagher. And she's from Chicago. And um, I think there was a Gallagher in this show called... um, What was the show called? Anyway, Frank Gallagher. Um... I'm blanking on the show. Any uh, show, I, I guess it's a popular name in Chicago, and you're from Chicago. She wrote, excellent show. This human rights report has uh, let the genie out of the bottle. I believe the world can no longer deny the obvious. I'm neither Palestinian nor Jewish. What I am is a human being who sees the obvious, who sees exactly what you are talking about. And, you know, she goes on to make some other points. Uh, thank you for that message. And she's listening all the way from Chicago. Um, we're running out of time. We have about 30 seconds. What can our listeners do about this, uh, Ali? What do you suggest? What do you recommend? Well, I, you know, the, the listener from Chicago, I, I love that comment because it shows how you don't have to be Israeli. You don't have to be Palestinian. You just have to be a decent person who supports human rights. And we, as in the United States, are on the side of apartheid as a country. We give billions of dollars a year to Israel. And I think we have to advocate and tell our politicians we want to stop funding apartheid. And in fact, there is a bill in Congress that was just introduced by Representative Betty McCollum, which uh, calls for accountability. It calls for the U.S. to, to ensure that U.S. aid to Israel is not used to commit human rights crimes against Palestinians. So one thing we can do if we want to do that kind of advocacy is um, ask our members of Congress to co-sponsor that bill. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ali, for being on the program and uh, look forward to having you again in the future. It would be my pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so Ahmed much. and Samar. Summer, we're out of time, and um, um, I hope you'll be back in the studio soon. And we have about 10, 15 seconds. Thank you so much. Uh, have a great weekend, everyone. Um, we'll see you at the same place, uh, same time next week, a week from now, here at uh, WMNF. This is True Talk on WMNF, WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for NPR News is next, and after that, it's radioactivity. Have an awesome weekend. 